Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. My guests today are Norma Garcia-Gonzalez and Catherine Nagel. Norma is director of the Los Angeles County Department of Parks and Recreation and the Los Angeles County Regional Parks and Open Space District. And Catherine is the longtime executive director of the City Parks Alliance, a nonprofit organization that supports the creation, revitalization, and sustainability of city parks and green space. Today, we're going to chat with Norma and Catherine about urban parks and equity. We'll learn from Norma about what's been happening in Los Angeles County over the last several years and how they're working to have a more equitable park system. And then we'll hear from Catherine about what other cities are doing, whether this is a movement across the country and so forth. Along the way, we'll discuss challenges the cities face and ways to address them. So stay with us. Hello, Catherine and Norma. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks so much to both of you for coming on the show. It's great to be here. So happy to be here, Margaret. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. So um, before we dive into our conversation, we always like to start the episodes by learning a little bit about our guests. So I really want to hear how each of you kind of came to do what you do. How'd you get involved with city parks and kind of come to work in the jobs you're doing? Um, Catherine, maybe I'll just start with you first. Sure, Margaret. Well, I had a, a background in things Japanese. I worked in Japanese media and then uh, ran a Japan America Society in Philadelphia. And at that job, we started a cherry tree planting project across the city. And it was really inspiring to me to see how these trees truly brought community together across cultures. And then how this whole project in Philadelphia's park system was able to connect people to each other. And so as a result of that, I went back to school and studied landscape architecture and then found my way to City Parks Alliance as, a, as an advocate. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's so interesting. Norma, how about you? How did you come to do what you're doing? Well, at the age of 16, I was part of a summer youth employment program uh, for at-risk youth in the summer, and I was placed in an urban park uh, in my local community, and that was my first employment opportunity, and I fell in love with being outdoors, the programming, the people that I connected to, and for several years, even after the program ended, I became an employee, uh, put myself through college, and while I took a different path after college, my love for parks um, and public service really began uh, when I was 16 at that summer park employment program. Oh, that's great. I love that. And that's a great segue into the first question I have for you all. And Catherine, I want to start with you. And it's a kind of a bigger picture question, which might help the stage for our equity discussion. Um, and, you know, I'm anytime I have a question about city parks or want to talk to city parks, I talk to you because I just think your organization does really great work. And I, I know people may not need to be convinced of this, but I just want you to talk first about the importance of parks, especially in urban areas. I know there's a lot of studies out there that document the value of parks and natural areas for uh, across a range of things, health outcomes, various ecosystem services, and so forth. And with climate change, I think these values are rising. But 
just kind of, I know you can't do this question justice in the few minutes we have, but just talk a little bit about the value of parks. Sure. Well, you know, th there are so many values that, that that parks provide. But let me just back up a little bit just to talk about um, uh, cities. And, you know, the fact is that in the last half century, we've seen a growth in, in the urban population. And so the need for and the number of urban parks has grown and there's been a true renaissance of, of park making that are that are doing so many things for cities beyond just providing the traditional recreation benefits. And, you know, many of these parks are in highly visible places in, in downtowns like the High Line in New York City or in, in places along, you know, former industrial waterfronts and even over roads that um, have been capped to provide more space, such as in Clyde Warren Park in Dallas. And so, you know, all of these green spaces are so important to people who are living in cities, you know, especially in dense areas where you know, folks might not even have a, a backyard. I mean, those of us who live in apartments don't have a, you know, immediate place to go to. So our local parks are really important for our mental and physical health. And we saw that during the pandemic. But our, our parks also provide so many benefits for uh, the, the environment. They keep our cities cooler and cleaner. You know, they manage stormwater. They boost biodiversity, and um, things like trails and greenways that uh, run through parks are providing alternative and non-polluting transportation options. The, the social benefits are enormous too. We were just out in Los Angeles and saw that the parks that are in Norma's system and, you know, the rec centers that are that are providing programs for local teenagers are, are just critical parts of, of creating a healthy community. You know, it's where the seniors uh, keep their connections to neighbors going and where all kinds of cultural uh, events take place and where political expression happens. So they're really important for a healthy society. We also have seen that that parks are super important for economic reasons to create that higher quality of life that uh, attracts and retains residents and businesses and, and jobs. There was just uh, uh, some research that came out by the Outdoor Industry Association saying that last year, the outdoor recreation sector created 5 million jobs. So super important for, again, for creating healthy communities. I do want to add that there's a new emerging role for for parks and recreation agencies, and that is as a social service provider and in emergency management. And again, we saw this during the pandemic when these, you know, park agencies were able to to redeploy their uh, their 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 space, their buildings, and their flexible staff to to meet the the crises at hand. So they're very important for uh, building a you know a, a healthy and resilient city. Yeah, yeah, those are a lot of good points there. Well, let's turn to Los Angeles County. So Norma, I looked up a few facts <laughs> and Los Angeles County is 4,000 square miles. Uh, so one of the largest counties in the United States. And um, just for comparison for our listeners, the entire state of Connecticut is only 5,000 square miles. Um, and LA County is the largest county in terms of population with 10 million people. So you have a very big job. Can start by telling us just a little bit about the park system in the county and I have, you know, I'm an economist. I want to know a little bit about your budget and finances. Where do you get your funding from for the park system? Can you just talk in general about the system? 
Thank you, Margaret. Uh, the Los Angeles County Parks and Recreation uh, Park System is a very dynamic system. Um, I want to mention that in Los Angeles County, there are 88 cities within the county. And so the LA County Park System really plays three roles. The first role is we are the regional park system for the 10 million residents uh, that encompasses all 88 cities and unincorporated areas. So we provide the park infrastructure, the large regional parks, the trail system, uh, the recreational lakes, the nature system, nature centers, natural areas. Um, people don't, we have 14 wildlife sanctuaries. That's very important as really critters and animals are at the point of extinction. We acquire land to make sure that uh, our biodiversity and animal life have areas where they can be protected and thrive. We also manage the gardens and arboretums. We have four botanical gardens, which are well known throughout the country, um, as well as performing arts venues like the Hollywood Bowl and the Ford Theater. We manage about 70,000 acres of parkland. And so it's a very vast. The other role that the LA County Park System is we are the Municipal Park and Recreation Organization for the 1 million unincorporated residents. So if the unincorporated pockets, there are about 144 little islands of unincorporated areas throughout Los Angeles County. And if combined, we were a city, we'd be the second largest city in Los Angeles County, the fifth in the state of California. And the last role that we play is that Los Angeles County voters have a deep and long standing commitment to invest in public park lands and open space. And since 1992, there's been measures like Proposition A, and then most recently in 2017, Measure A, that dedicate funding in Los Angeles County to invest in park systems. And so my department through the Regional Park and Open Space District also manages that, um, that bond measure. And so this vast system is, is we depend on uh, general fund from LA County taxpayers to support our park system, but about 23% is revenue offset. Um, so we generate revenue uh, through our boating, through our, through our vehicle entrance fees, rentals, et cetera as well as have various public-private partnerships that help to steward our parkland. So our budget fluctuates depending on the capital infrastructure investments that we are making, but it's approximately a $315 million taxpayer investment to our park system on an annual basis. Mm. Oh, that's great. So I want to ask you now, Norma, to tell us about um, two park needs assessment reports that you all have done. One was in 2016 and another very recently in 2022. So let's start with the 2016 study. And uh, um, if you could start with what motivated this, as I understand it, there was a failed initiative, a ballot initiative in 2014. And maybe you could start with that background. What was it and how did that failure kind of lead you to do this needs assessment? Absolutely. 
And um, I mentioned a while ago that there was a Proposition A, which was dedicated funding to parks and open space in Los Angeles County uh, that was approved by the voters in 1992. And then there was another, and then in 1996. The Proposition A expired in 2014. And so there was a need to go back to the voters and request for um, the same type of, of investment in park and open space. And so there, in 2014, we went, uh, there was a coalition that went out to the voters in Los Angeles County with Proposition P, and it failed. Um, the LA Times, significant uh, organizations like the Sierra Club, while there was some proponents of Proposition P, there were all, also some opponents of Proposition P. And the, the opposition and the failure of Proposition P was really centered in one, equity, and two, engaging the community deeper. And I believe that the failure of Proposition P was the rise of a park equity movement um, in Los Angeles County that really, um, that really influenced park equity movement in the state of California and throughout the nation. Hmm. Yeah. So then you launched this needs assessment. Um, so tell us about that. I think I, I, a couple of things, I know you did a lot of data gathering and you did a lot of community engagement. So I'd just love to hear more about both of those pieces and, and what the focus was here. So after the failure of Proposition P, um, this was really where we retooled um, I mentioned the park equity movement, but we really retooled how we were going to center a park equity and community. And we invested a significant amount of time and money in engaging community-based organizations to lead, I think, the largest community engagement process that the county had ever engaged in in any other sphere topic. We really set the tone for community engagement. We decided at that point that we needed ambassadors um, that were trusted ambassadors in community to really engage all sectors in what were the needs of LA County and LA County being 88 cities, 144 unincorporated areas. And so we, in, we developed a process where we had over 140 community meetings they were each run by community-based organizations or city leaders where we engage community in multilingual engagement, five different languages. Um, we, for the first time, we actually paid for babysitting, paid for translation services, paid for food so that paid for transportation, um, paid for, you know, really invested to ensure that all barriers that prevent people from engaging in an authentic community process. We tried to eliminate as much of those barriers. And we resoundedly heard how critical parks were, the need for to create more parks, especially in communities of color, urban areas, as well as the critical importance of taking care of park infrastructure. We heard from, you know, from mothers and from families that if playgrounds, 
playgrounds were not safe or if restrooms were not clean, that those were the number one deterrence from actually accessing um, parks. There was a lot of critical data. But what really happened is we created this movement that was centered in community about, and that really set the stage in our park needs assessment to really provide data that informed uh, measure A, which was resoundingly approved by the voters in Los Angeles County, receiving almost 75% of voter approval. But the most important piece is that in every community in Los Angeles County engaged in prioritizing their needs. So this movement helped to really inform, as you can think of, 88 city council members about what their needs were in their particular community, as well as the Board of Supervisors, as well as park agencies. Um, and this was just not only the passage and the approval of, of Measure A, which was a measure that was approved, like I said, 75%, but also in perpetuity. But what it also did is really created this collaboration of and this park movement. Um, and we're so excited that we're seeing the fruits of that engagement to date in regards to where the park investments are happening in Los Angeles County. Yes, that initiative measure A, um, I was just so struck by how I think people across the county, including in the wealthier parts of the county, voted to have a significant portion of the funding go to communities that were more in need and more park poor. Is that right? Can you just talk about that? Because it just seems like such a victory for, you know, equity that everybody voted for where the funds should go, where the needs were. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Do you agree that that's a way to look at it? <laughs> Absolutely, Margaret. I, that was, when I talked about that was the the... I think the birth of park equity, where throughout Los Angeles County, voters not only approved Measure A, but approved that 30% of the funds, a minimum of 30% of the funds were to be invested in the highest need communities in Los Angeles County. And so then I just want to also mention that the state followed with the Proposition 68. So LA County voters had the opportunity to leverage both Measure A funding, state Proposition 68 to really create park investments in highest need communities. And so um, that is where, and LA County United um, came together and united on that voice that we needed to make investments in communities that hadn't been invested before. And that was a significant difference between Measure A and Proposition A. Mm -hmm. So Proposition 68 at the state level, um, just to veer off on that for just a minute, but did that also have a, a kind of an equity component to it? Or was, can you just say a couple of minutes? A Absolutely. Bit more about that? Um, and, I, and I mentioned that park equity really, you know, that park equity movement really, you know, influenced um, state policy and even even federal policy. But in Proposition 68, there were so many community-based organizations, so many cities that supported, and, and then you had 75% approval of, of Measure A. And LA County is one of the most populous counties in the state of California. And so this created a base and a support for a statewide measure or bond measure that supported parks. And Proposition 68 
also had a significant equity component so that parks that are currently in the construction phase or um, or acquisition phase have the opportunity to both have Measure A funding and state funding. Mm, I got it. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to you in a moment and ask about the, the new park needs assessment in 2022. But let me turn back to you first, Catherine, if I can. Um, so there are a number of peer-reviewed studies and reports and various things that have documented some inequities in the amount of and accessibility to parks and natural areas, green space and the like. Um, that wasn't just a problem that LA County faced. It's been shown in other settings as well. And you know, some of these studies have linked it to some uh, practices like redlining in the past that were racist home lending practices. Um, some of, you know, are, are related to sort of how resources are just allocated across neighborhoods. So uh, I want to ask you whether you see these problems kind of getting addressed more widely recognized, first of all, and, and being addressed. And are other cities and counties doing what Los Angeles County has done? Yes, and I think LA County really is is one of a handful of cities that's been at the forefront uh, of this movement to to address those inequities. You know, despite the all the benefits that I talked about, all all the ways that parks provide uh, services to communities as the newer parks were being built, you know, the uh, the investment was happening often in in the the downtowns and not reaching the distressed urban neighborhoods outside of the city core where the the benefits were were most needed and we, you know where there was the the chronic stress and trauma unemployment food and housing insecurity and those things only grew during the pandemic and so in those neighborhoods that have experienced that historic disinvestment. You can really see the results in the way the physical space has developed. Those neighborhoods often lack you know, tree canopies and have fewer quality parks and smaller parks and parks that just don't have programming and uh, you know, sufficient recreation opportunities. So you know, there might be communities where you, know, you have some park space, but you know, they're often in bad shape and in need of significant upgrades after decades of disinvestment. So this was happening as as people were moving back to cities and, and the urban uh, population was growing. And we as in City Parks Alliance began to see that, that some cities were starting to address those inequities. And what was interesting was that they were not just addressing them, but that they were using data now to make the decisions about how they were going to use public budgets to um, address the needs of the, the communities that had really not been paid attention to for, for, for many years. And so we saw cities using data sets looking at, for example, you know, air quality, what, what part of the city had um, you know, high levels of pollution and asthma rates, or which neighborhoods were experiencing flooding on a frequent basis, or where are there increased heat levels or the highest number of, of children living uh, without access to parks. So that's a, a very new approach to um, how a community can make a decision uh, about its you know, use uh, and, and appropriation of public funds. And we saw cities like uh, Minneapolis and uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, I'm trying to remember Detroit, 
um, and New York were some of the cities that you know began to be, uh, I think, smarter in the way that they were making their decisions. Again, with with that you know using the data driven approach, but also including the intelligence on the ground with, with the community input that Norma described. And uh, as a result, there's been a significant increase in the way that neighborhood parks are now funded and viewed. And and I think that's that's really exciting. Other cities are beginning to take note. Uh, Louisville just went through this process and uh, is is going to make some changes um, and has actually passed uh, more money in, in their budget to, to support many of the neighborhood parks. So it's not only an assessment, but it's, it's followed by um, more, you know, more dollars that are, that are now available to go to these parks. Yeah, that's great to hear. Do you see other cities, especially smaller ones, Catherine, doing these kinds of park needs assessments that Norma described? I mean, it's kind of a big undertaking. You mentioned that they are gathering data. Do you, is this, is it difficult for smaller cities with fewer resources to pull that off? Well, I, I just mentioned Louisville, and that's a, a really interesting city because uh, they historically have not funded their, their public parks, and they've got a wonderful system of Olmstead parks and have great civic investment from the nonprofit side and uh, from, from private foundations, uh, but, but the public budget has, has not been adequate. And as a result, so many of the neighborhood parks really have fallen into disrepair, but, it, but through a local advocacy group now they've done this assessment and as I mentioned has have been able to uh, pass legislation to, to uh, increase their their public budget uh, that will go to these neighborhood parks Philadelphia you know while not a, a small city but but you know a, a smaller large city um, has has done something interesting they actually passed a beverage tax that was then supplemented by philanthropy and uh, that has created a pool of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that's gone into rebuilding parks and recreation centers throughout the city. So uh, every city that has uh, approached this has done the funding in a different way, but I think the the smaller cities, you know, Pittsburgh uh, did this as well, um, can, can take on the task. Yeah, yeah, that's good to hear. Um, so, Dorma, let me turn back about the 2022 study, which you all call Park Needs Assessment Plus. You did some additional analysis building on that earlier study, and you found some demographic changes across the county, I think. And so what did you find in the new assessment that you all did? So, Margaret, first I want to mention in Los Angeles County, the Park Needs Assessment, the original, has been downloaded over 350,000 times the data has been widely made available to community-based organizations, to the you know to our academic institutions, um, to city governments, and this data set has allowed everyone to speak with one voice and have one data set. So it has been extremely valuable, and we're seeing the deep impact in small communities and cities um, and how they're using the data. But in 2022, we needed to go further. Um, we specifically focused um, and invested once again in significant data. And we went deeper in regards to did a composite population of vulnerability. So we looked at social barriers, which entail, you know, number of young children, elderly, non-English speakers, um, single parent households, poverty, unemployment, to understand deeper the demographics um, in communities, we looked at transportation barriers. 
um, active lines of transportation, bus lines, uh, public transportation to access, um, not, you know, not only county park infrastructure, but state, national, and local that were all in Los Angeles County and looked at the vulnerabilities and the barriers to accessing public space in communities. We also looked at health vulnerabilities. Um, I know that the City Park Alliance has featured um, in their podcast um, the Prevention Institute's work on people, parks, and power, which created data sets and connections that people who lived in park-poor communities or with high park needs have a reduced life expectancy. So we looked at health vulnerabilities that were about life expectancy, high pollution rates, um, as well as environmental vulnerabilities, limited park space, tree canopy, uh, high percentage of impervious surface, um, high excessive heat days. And so we went deeper in this park needs assessment plus. And what we did is we created um, some mapping that is really mapping to help policymakers as well as as uh, agencies and leaders to look at, you know, to have a deeper sense of urgency when it comes to the creation of park space, because it goes beyond just high park need, but it is really now linking to aspects of life as well as environmental burdens and benefits. And we've also linked this work um, to uh, the state's 30 by 30 initiative, which is an initiative to conserve 30% of public lands and water um, by 2030 and have created a roadmap in Los Angeles County um, and a roadmap that looks at areas where we need to conserve um, parklands, public lands, but in areas where we need to restore uh restore and heal lands to support and to address deep environmental burdens that have come with, you know, toxicities and degraded lands. So we have now gone really beyond just building parks and high need communities, but thinking about using this data to heal land, to restore degraded lands as an environmental restoration uh, initiative for Los Angeles County. Right, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about the downloads 350,000 times. I've heard you say that before, and um, we will put links to both of these needs assessments on the website with the podcast because they are really terrific, and there's a lot of data there, that's for sure. So they're great work. Um, well, we're out of time here, so I have to close the podcast, and we always do that with our regular feature we call Top of the Stack, and that's where we ask you to recommend something to the listeners, any kind of book, article, podcast, or anything that's caught your attention lately, something our listeners might like. So, Catherine and Norma, what's on the top of your stack? So I'll start you, with you again, Catherine. What's on the top of your stack? Sure. Well, I just finished reading a book called Sacred Future, Restoring Our Ancient Bond with the Natural World. And it's by the historian Karen Armstrong, who looks at the world's religions, especially in the period of 900 to 200 BC, where they had practices based on a deep relationship with nature. And she talks about the importance of that view to the environmental crises we face today. 
Oh, fantastic. How about you, Norma? Do you have something that's on the top of your stack? I just mentioned uh, the Prevention Institute, um, and they did a significant study linking life expectancy with parkland and tree canopy. So I would say the title of, of, of their study is People, Parks, and Power, a National Initiative for Green Space, Health Equity, and Racial Justice. Oh, fantastic. I'm definitely going to have a look at that. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure having you both on Resources Radio, Norma and Catherine. I'm so glad we were able to have you on to tag team and educate our listeners about the important role of city parks, how we can achieve equitable access to parks, and to really learn about all the interesting things Los Angeles County is doing. So thanks so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks so much, Margaret. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.